0: Welcome to the 1CA Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Gaines. 1CA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, or field agents to discuss their experiences working the last three feet of foreign policy. The goal is to inspire you and anyone interested in working on ground with partner nations and their people. Also, if you're interested in coming on the show or guest hosting, contact us at capodcasting at gmail.com. I'll have that email address in the show notes. And to find out more about the Civil Affairs Association, check out our website at www.civilaffairsassos.org. I'll also have that website in the show notes. Now enjoy the show.
1: They really are, I would say, legendary now. I mean, the the ISIS fighters that fight against them are scared of them. You know, and they're, they're not... Not that there's anything wrong, but they're not in support positions. These are units, fully combat capable units with all female fighters. They're as heroic and effective as their male counterparts.
0: Today, we welcome Michael Patrick Mulroy, former Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East. Mick worked for Secretary Mattis, Esper, and the transition to the new administration. He is also a retired CIA paramilitary operations officer and a United States Marine. He is coming on the show today to discuss the integration between field operations, civil affairs, and diplomacy. Mick is currently running the Lobo Institute and is a national security analyst for ABC News and an advocate to end child soldiery. This is part one of a two-part series. So without any further ado, let's go on with the show. We've, we've got sound. You can hear me, I can hear you. Let's record. No problem. <laughs> And I, uh, I don't know if you
1: saw, Jack, the paper I sent you that might be also, I sent it a little late, I should have sent it earlier, but it's me and a uh, retired Lieutenant General uh, Ken Tovo. We were on the original Lyle team together, which is the team that went into Northern Iraq before the war. But the whole paper is about DoD working closely with the CIA and how we need to make sure that this isn't just a one-off thing for the GWAT that just goes away, and the officers of the future need to be like the interagency compatible. Like we need to really recognize we're one team, and essentially you know, the, the rivalries that existed pre nine eleven need to come back. So that's the and of course irregular warfare, which you know I, I played a small part uh, with the strategy that came out, but really pushing that irregular warfare um, isn't just CT right it's it's near peer competitors it's it's every spectrum of warfare and it needs to be considered that it's going to be a different different version maybe influence is going to be a lot more important in um in certain aspects like near-peer competitors than than direct action type stuff but anyway that's what that paper is if you want to post it when you put this or
0: absolutely will and that's and that's one thing that i'm sure you've seen is you come up with all these brilliant moments where you you know you find cohesion between agencies or you find that special operational moment where things really worked and then it gets yeah. forgotten. <laughs> it's it forgotten. Right. And then especially when you
1: don't have that, you know, necessity of war, when it goes away, at least in some large part, right, then everybody goes back to their corners and starts doing their own thing. Right. And then they're surprised we don't work well together when we run into the next conflicts, Right. Right. So me and uh, General Tobo and, and another guy uh, Uncle Andy is pretty legendary paramilitary officer could only use that part of his name. So it was three writers. So if you want to ask about that, happy to talk about
0: that. Well, one other place where we probably crossed paths or we complimented each other was your work with child soldiers. Yeah. absolutely. Um, I was at AFRICOM and I was the PAO that closed out OOC or Operation Observant Compass. Yeah. I was going to say, that's a fantastic story about using you know, military assets plus agency assets to influence a population to shift away from, you know, a bad cycle. Basically,
1: yeah, uh, I would love. I think you're 100 percent right. Hopefully, it will get more talk because we did a documentary on one of the child
0: soldiers from that.
1: That really, is star in
0: the sky. Yeah, I'll put a link to that on the show notes as well because I think Again, that's worth checking out. Yeah, he's he's an awesome guy. But but now
1: a uh, author from Montana is writing the book. Oh, great. About the documentary, about the guy. Right. Was, this book sold 4 million copies. So this is going to go from a story that, you know, very few people, except for the people that worked in it, know about to, I hopefully, hopefully a lot of people know about it. So right. it's going to get a lot more talk, I think, for good reasons. I mean, how we effectively work together with Ugandans. Uh, and then just the the story of this individual and his wife, who was also a child soldier, um, right, it's just inspirational, now. It's like one of those stories that you, I mean, you can't. It's hard to believe, but it's true.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. So, anyway, let's start talking through the subjects. <laughs> we'll yeah, spend no all problem. day. Uh, well, as you know, I I brought you on because I wanted to talk about how there needs to be a more concerted effort between DOD development and diplomatic field operations in partnering. Yes. On the ground, on that last three feet of foreign policy. And, you know, this is a civil affairs podcast, but we're interested in how everything comes together because whether you're a CA person or a public diplomacy person or, you know, a field ops person, what do you need to do to call them? How do you get them involved? What are the right words and things to do to get them interested? You you have that paper that you wrote, and, and I'll add that to show notes. But if you want to talk about it a little bit, that'd be fantastic.
1: Yes, I would like to talk about that.
0: So I'm a analyst for ABC News,
1: mm-hmm. uh, and they asked me to do uh, an article on covert action in the CIA. Right? Oh, okay. But it's 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 at uh, the strategic level. Like um, a lot of people, and in a way, they're right. It's like covert action gets done in a vacuum. Sure. A lot of the people that are responsible for executing the national security strategy have no idea what the agency is doing. Every other agency, from state to the DoD to Treasury to Commerce to—I mean, just go down the list. There, it's it's supposed to be a cohesive effort with one department assigned lead, others in support. The agency does play, a, a, I think, a significant role. But what I was advocating for in the paper is that it's more incorporated into, at least for those that can have knowledge of generally what the agency is doing to meet the objectives in the national security strategy. Right. Right. So that's what I advocated for and more consistent funding for covert action. So it's not necessarily just a spike based on current world events. Right. Right. You know, our adversaries have pretty consistently been China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, and then CT. None of those are going to go away. It should be resourced at a level that's very consistent so that you can continuously do the needful. And then, of course, if there's some spike in conflict, that it could be supplemented. But I think integrating into our national security strategy a bit better, so it's not just the president and like the, the director of the CIA that knows about these things, And then funding it so it doesn't have the troughs uh, that really take a long time to come out of when it comes to, you know, hiring new people and getting more infrastructure. And that should be very consistent, just like the military is. Sure. uh, They have the resources ready for a big event, like a conflict between nations.
0: Right. And one of the challenges I've seen, because I work public affairs, but I do it at the TS level a lot of times is trying to figure out how to keep people who are not touching covert or clandestine integrated with people who are covert and clandestine. And so what I've tried to do is build guidance and recommendations for an intermediary, usually the operations manager, to where Mm -hmm. they know what clandestine people, officers are operating with, networks that they're influencing, operations that they're managing. And they also are knowing what's the public side, what is the public outreach, the diplomacy, the engagements that's happening. And then they integrate them so that one doesn't step on the other. And also they complement each other so that as a clandestine operation goes on, it creates maneuver space for those public operators to be able to do their job and succeed and vice versa. Sometimes you need public facing operations to go first, in order to build the content for a clandestine to be successful as well. And so by trying to describe that relationship, to me, it tries to build a more comfortable process. And also when we're an intermediary can then go and describe to leadership why you know the clandestine is important and why that public position is important and how they interact with each other. Because I think without it, most people see clandestine operations as a one-off, when it's not. It's, it's part of weaving a larger narrative in operations and in achieving strategic goals. No, you're exactly
1: right. If, sorry if you could hear the dog drinking water, but I have a I have a Malinois that basically drinks like she just crossed the desert. <laughs> like six minutes. Um, but if you could hear that, sorry about that. But no, you're exactly right, Jack. Well, clandestine, of course, is trying to hide who is doing the operation, because right. it depends on the, you know, what, what um, authorities you fall under title 10, title 50, title 50 is a covert, right? Right. Um, and covert is the ability basically to deny it. Like, I don't know what happened. That car just blew up. And I'm, I'm not talking about a specific thing, but it gives the agency, the authority to be deniable. Right. Sure. Um, I think they work better when you, an operation is both clandestine and covert. Right. So it isn't you're not trying to deny the obvious, right? Where it's right. like, sure, you didn't do it, right? So, But they do, to your point, they need to be integrated into our overall mission. The, it's the US national security objectives. It's not one particular department or agency. It's really important that they do work together. That's why I was advocating for a strategy that actually has a covert action annex, just like we had an irregular warfare annex. And of course, it would be limited to who needs to know it, but it would be a little broader. And it doesn't have to say how, right? Uh, nobody right. in my old job should, will, and I should ever, should be talking about how we do things, right? Sources of methods. It doesn't have to do that, but it does have to say, this part of our national objectives, that's that's ours and we're responsible for it. And if we need assistance, which we do often with the military, then they will be the supporting effort, right? And oftentimes it'll switch who's in the lead. If there is a problem in a country, and this is like, or hypothetical, or we could use North Iraq, where there's going to be an insertion of clandestine covert forces first, before we have made the determination to go to war, uh, that gives us the ability to say, they're not go to war. Obviously, in the case of the Iraq war, we decided, but there was teams that, that were inserted. And that gave the country the ability, the president and, and all of his cabinet, the ability to determine, uh, one, gather information, intel to determine whether this was necessary to, to build up the forces that would assist us. And in the case where I was, it would have been the Kurds. And then to essentially evolve it into from a title 50 to a title 10, right? right? When you, because, you know, we're not going to invade a country that size with just title 50 forces. Uh, we're going to need the army and the Marine Corps. Um, so that's a good example uh, whether you're agreeing with the war or not, but this is, we're talking operational here, right? Uh, of how, you could transition from a Title 50-based endeavor to a Title 10 that fit like this and one significantly helps the other, right? Basically, the, the people doing very similar things, but doing it in a way that's more clandestine and is deniable to give our policymakers or, and some people forget this sometimes, sometimes the country we're working with doesn't want to talk about the US involvement, that they're getting assistance for the United States. But it's, it's still a common uh, objective. And we want
0: to help, but we don't want to hurt them in the process. I remember Jordan early on was very cautious about U.S. Yeah. involvement within the country. But as Syria started to implode, they, they were more open about having that U.S. presence because they knew their populace would feel more secure, knowing that military forces were worth their forces on the border. Yes. So how do you see standard outreach and clandestine operations on the ground, helping forward foreign policy. Sure. And, you know, as you know, I can't go into too
1: many d- details about what I did, but, you sure. know, what's approved is I was what's called the paramilitary operations officer for, you know, 20 years in the agency, right. which is um, kind of like the SOCOM component of the agency. It's called Special Activity Center. Uh, but I was, a, I was a case officer and a paramilitary officer because we're, right. we're like a hybrid of two things, uh, just to give you the background. And so I certainly did see from a chief of station, from a chief of base, from a chief of a team, if you will, like an expeditionary team, right. just being the line paramilitary officer. Right. So I saw it from there. And then my last job, uh, I had the privilege of being um, Secretary Mattis's and Secretary Esper's uh, uh, deputy for the Middle East, right? So right. very much in the policy. I'm not political, but I'm very much in the. That job is very much makes policy for the U.S. when it comes to DOD. Uh, with the interagency, et cetera, so I got to see how one line case officer uh, collecting information can then get analyzed by an- analysts at the DIA or CIA, and then end up directly influencing the policies of the United States. Sure, you know, every meeting when you're when I was at the White House, which is like three times a week, we'd have these um, policy coordination meetings. And it would lead with an intelligence brief every time, so we were on a common set of facts. It was DNI or sometimes the CIA directly laying out the facts, and then the discussion took those facts. And then you know, obviously, there was positions by you know State Department, Defense Department, uh, the DIC The IC stays out of the policy part. Uh, they right. simply they're there to present the facts and, and analyze uh, the situation. So. I always knew that my intels that I was writing were going into the agency. I, they do give you feedback on whether whether it was read by who. And you do even, you know, at my level and up, you get executive intelligence. Well, my old job, that is, not now, not here in Montana. Yeah. Um, but in the Pentagon, um, we would have intel briefs every day. Right? Every day, first thing come in, you know, 7:30 in the morning. Uh, in my case, DIA briefer who's briefing all sorts of intelligence from across the intelligence uh, community. And that informed me on the stance that I thought DOD should take. And then, of course, when we went to have a meeting, we had a brief So to your sure. question, um, it does directly, and it should, it should directly influence the policy discussions and eventual decision because it's what the United States has deemed the most reliable information on what is actually going on it's not perfect it's not infallible but it's a lot better than just one individual's personal assumption
0: you know and speaking about that level of intelligence i've always been a big fan of sue gordon who used to i've reached out to her a few times and whenever she's been on a a show or been published and i always say hey that was a great you know talk you did and Mm She's very encouraging too. She's like, just keep going, Jack, with your you know integration between public affairs and intelligence, and so yeah, good people.
1: She is really good people. And when I was uh, when I was at Pentagon, she was the deputy TNI. Mm-hmm. So I was in a lot of meetings with her, and in true IC fashion, she was you know just the facts. That it w- is what we should be. We being you know uh, the IC. Uh, we're there to provide objective analysis not to be influenced by, you know, political realities or preferences or any of that stuff. And I think that's really done well by across the IC, but Sue was a really good example.
0: What I appreciated about her was her drive to shift the IC out of counterterrorism and into competition and foreign malign influence. Um, yeah. Felt like she was very timely and on that, you know, ringing that bell, which I believe has helped, has helped the IC to start seeing the bigger picture. On form influence so yes and that
1: was one of the areas that i think we kind of collectively dropped the ball on but and also one of the things we focus on in the irregular warfare annex and ct you know if something blows up Times square last night we'd be all you'd be asking me about ct right, right. um uh, so i'm not i'm not poo poo i mean we got to keep our eye on that but we can do a lot more than just one thing, right? We spend almost a trillion dollars on our defense a year. We can do multiple things. Obviously, we're looking at look at the war in Ukraine right now. Uh, yeah. Most people didn't expect that, but now we're in for um, a multi-year-long significant war uh, on the footsteps of NATO. It doesn't like emphasize your point and Sue's point. I don't know what does. So now we're looking at uh, Iran, who I think this year could easily get to a nuclear weapon and that could create a conflict, obviously. Some country, uh, namely Israel. Um, yeah. has said,
0: <laughs> that might yeah. just knee jerk and strike them. Yeah, I've never Yeah, I mean, they've I already thought.
1: said it's an threat and they're not going to wait around to find out if they use it. So unless yeah. you're taking their word for it. I mean, they're at 60% enrichment. And from my understanding, it only takes a matter of weeks to get to 90%. And they have enough to make four weapons. It's the last I read. It's not, they don't have access to them. Classified stuff, but that's another conflict that might be coming. And then, of course, you always have the China issue with Taiwan, right? uh, North Korea, you know, not uh, getting enough attention, so they launch a missile. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. and they announced yesterday that they're going to exponentially increase their nuclear weapons capacity and, and ensure that it has the ability to hit like Los Angeles. And then they're accusing us of causing it. Well, there's going to be an arms race because now Japan and obviously South Korea are seeing this and they have to defend themselves. And the United States has to react too, of course, when you have right. somebody essentially viewed as unstable that now has a nuclear arsenal and may have the ability to deliver it fairly soon.
0: Yeah. Well, do you have any thoughts on strategic pacing? Like let's let's take a country, uh, Thailand or mm-hmm. Cambodia, where they are feeling the pressure of China on their doorstep they're also feeling the pressure of Australia, Japan, the US, you know, to stay either neutral or you know, we would love for them to switch and be purely US support or ASEAN supportive but it's it's a difficult position for them to have. We do have civil affairs, public diplomacy, field operators on ground in those countries working with the local populations. Any advice to them on how you see strategic competition happening? Do you think it should be more construction and development focused or like local leader, community leader engagement focused, or should we just focus on national leader level engagements to to keep forwarding that national policy?
1: Uh, so the short answer is all the above, and I'll get, get to those individual. The first thing that I noticed when we talked about strategic pacing, a lot of times people focus geographically. You know, when it, even it came to the deployment of forces like, oh, well, you know, we just have a new strategy and China's at top. So let's just send everybody to be off the coast of China. It's like, yeah, that's not that's not necessarily. I mean, I'm not saying that we're not going to shift some forces. That's the purview of the chairman. But it is more than just geographically, like you can compete. You want to compete against Russia and, and China and all the, the countries you just mentioned. Right. right. So first, it, they may be more important than who we send to Beijing or Moscow, right, which are very locked down and very difficult. Not that we shouldn't have presence there, but it might not be the most effective presence when it comes to one collecting the information that we need to develop policy. That could be done in another country and often is. So it's important for that reason. The other part I'd say is the continuity of being a partner is very important for the United States to be able to outcompete China, Russia, in other countries that we're interested in out competing, sure. And what I mean by that is, countries need to know that, and this is difficult in a democracy where you know you have changes of administrations, but they know you know we're going to be consistent. Like our national security strategies, the saying used to be, "It ends at the border." Unfortunately, doesn't seem to be now. That makes the the work of diplomats, uh, that makes the work of intelligence officers and you know defense attaches difficult. Um, So I would hope, so I'm speaking broadly, that whichever party is in power realizes that in order for the United States to be more effective over time, we need to be consistent. So they should think long and hard before just going through and just removing everything their predecessor did. Uh, And I hear this all the time from friends I know that are uh, in other countries. And then also when I talk on foreign media, and that's one of the questions they always ask is the United States just seems to be like a fair weather partner. I wouldn't agree with that, but to the extent that our partners start viewing it that way, we need to take umbrage and realize that we need to be as consistent as possible. So they know that when we were there, we're doing a good job. They feel like they're supported. They feel like they'd rather fall in with the United States over China. That that we keep whatever we're doing to make that work, which could be obviously key leader engagements at the senior level, but also that just basic level. Of the you know the political uh, officer or the liaison working with CT that they see the value for them in working with the United States and that it's really a partnership, right? Right. Whereas some other countries, and I'd say namely China, it's about something China wants. Yes, more of a client relationship. Yeah, they need natural resources. You have them. We want them. Let's do business. Um, I might maybe simplifying it, but I don't think that's the way the United States does this. I think we need to double down on that. I also think, you know, the United States is the leader of the free world and we shouldn't shy away from it. I mean, we should support human rights uh all over the world. And and our involvement with countries helps them get better. You hear a lot of questions about like, well, why does the United States deal with this country? Their human rights record isn't so good. I don't disagree in many other cases about the how these countries do with human rights but us being involved us being present and us pushing a partner to do better is better than us just washing our hands and saying we're not going we're not going to play because then they're just going to have the influence of autocratic states like China and Russia who don't give a damn about other people's human rights they don't give a damn about their own citizens human rights so they're going to have zero influence so you know I do get the criticism but I think the solution is where you know, I would deviate, and I know this isn't is your question, but deviate a bit and say the U.S. being involved in countries whose human rights are potentially not up to ours makes them better over time. I think vice right. just throwing up our hands and saying, "Well, uh, we don't want to, we don't want to participate with you because you guys don't don't have the same standards."
0: It's always an odd balance because I've seen it both ways. I've seen countries' representatives. You know, they have talked to me about it. And said, okay, the United States comes in and they always have strings attached to their diplomacy and their development money to where, what do they say? Um, We have to perform in a way that makes the U.S. happy versus Mm -hmm. other forms of development where they're, you know, left alone to work through their issues. And then on the opposite side are those who complain that we just slap sanctions on countries and ignore them if if they we don't like what they do so it is a difficult balance to get that involvement where we're participating as well as trying to bring a country to a place where they are a, a good international partner mm-hmm. it is a balance quiet
1: diplomacy sometimes works better sure right if it's a constant you know getting on TV and berating a partner for something um that's not necessarily that effective. maybe not having as strict as contingent on aid, as we have in the past, maybe because uh, that's not what China does. They don't care what the country's doing to their own citizens. So we have to maybe do more quiet diplomacy, where we we talk about how we can progress in areas like um, women's rights or the rights of minorities, and rather than look for you know a microphone to get on there and berate them, it. it's definitely a balance, and there's no right or wrong answer. We have to deal with because the people that we're competing with don't have the same standards we do. Sure million people incarcerated because of their religious belief.
0: Yeah, Uyghurs. That's an amazing and horrible story. Yeah. Um, What do you think about women's peace and security? DoD is starting to get budget for it. And Mm -hmm. they're trying to figure out how to use it. Not we haven't fulfilled our budget in total, you know, in past years, civil affairs has started to get some leadership in that role. Do you have any thoughts on women's peace and security?
1: Well, I'm for it. So you tell my mom, wife, and daughters and goddaughters, I'm
0: definitely for women's peace and security.
1: In all seriousness, it's probably the most important thing in the diplomatic sphere in the human rights arena that we can do, Sure. right? They're generally 50% of the population. And in many of the countries that are the most war-torn, they have no influence in government. If you had more women involved in government, a lot more women, I think you would have less conflict. It's just, you know I've spent my entire career in conflicts.
0: What about military? Do you think that we should be training women for military positions as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think they should have completely equal opportunity in the military, right? They should be, and and it is in the United States, in my opinion, but we could do better. But we're talking countries that women can't even, look at Afghanistan now. So one of the things that Lobo does, Lobo Institute, we advise the State Department on Afghanistan. And I know that a lot of the media has moved on but it is god awful over there. It's worse than it was, I think, even when we went in the first place. Women have, they can't walk down the street without a male, male relative. They've thrown them out of elementary school, right? So as one female Afghan told me during one of our meetings, they, they are okay with them begging on the streets, but they can't go to elementary school. And we negotiated that. I mean, that's a whole new topic. But we, we have a lot to account for uh, when it comes to the plight of uh, women and girls.
0: Well, and the reason it struck me is thinking about the ISIS and Kurdish fighters. I believe that part of the reason the ISIS have become more respectful towards women is that the Kurds had female fighters and female leaders, and it, it took it took conflict for them to overcome that prejudice. Right. Um, I'm not advocating for the U.S. to start shipping weapons and training to women in Afghanistan, but if we had Trained women in the military and they actually served in military positions, it might have um, softened the Taliban position against women.
1: And you know, when we left, there's more women in the university in Kabul than men. Right. So, and now there's zero. Yeah. So that's a stat. And to, to your point, if, if people are interested in reading about the female fighters, uh, Gail Lamone, a friend of mine, uh, wrote a book about them. Uh, and it's incredible. They really are, I would say, legendary now. I mean, the the ISIS fighters that fight against them are scared of them, you know. And they're they're not not that there's anything wrong, but they're not in support positions. These are units fully combat capable units with all female fighters, are as heroic and effective as their male counterparts.
0: So this is the end of part one. In part two, Mick Moroi talks about China and competition. So stay tuned to the 1CA podcast, and thank you for listening.